1: From KQED.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Over the last half decade, labor organizers were able to call attention to the janitorial workers and bus drivers who help keep Silicon Valley running. In many cases, blue collar contractors have won improved wages and working conditions. But there's another class of technology industry workers who toil inside the big company offices but aren't tech company badged employees. Instead, they're employed by staffing agencies and work long term temp jobs at the name brand corporations. They don't get the same salaries and benefits, and perhaps unsurprisingly, based on the data that can be gathered, they're more likely to be women and underrepresented people of color. Joining us to talk about the tech industry's forgotten workforce, we've got Catherine Bracey, executive director and founder of the Tech Equity Collaborative, which produced the report Shining a Light on Tech's Shadow Workforce. Thanks for joining us, Catherine.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: So through this report, what do we now know about the contract workforce in Silicon Valley, which has been really hard to sort of track and and measure?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the major point here is that this um, shadow, it's sort of been an open secret that this shadow workforce exists. And we have seen some Uh, sort of reporting come through um, to to expose how prevalent the practice is, but this, as far as we know, is the first real comprehensive look at um, the workforce overall. And what we found um, is in some ways not surprising. As you mentioned, um, these workers who are hired through staffing agencies and often perform the same roles that um, many directly employed tech workers perform are paid less, uh, receive, uh, much lower benefits, um, and are more likely to be members of under-repre- underrepresented minority groups and women. Um, so we think this is really troubling, um, that, that tech, uh, is relying on this, uh, this workforce to perform really core functions of the business, um, and that those workers are, uh, more diverse than the tech workforce overall. So our goal here is really to shine a light and to uh, make some suggestions both for corporate practice change and public policy change.
3: And just to you know spell out the implications, the equity implications of these findings, I mean what does it mean for how far and wide the wealth that's being generated by the tech industry is spreading?
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, so if you're directly employed at a tech company, most most of those workers receive compensation, both in terms of salary and stock-based compensation. Um, For the workers who are hired through staffing agencies, they do not have access to stock-based compensation. Um, We have also seen lots of reporting over the last several years about the um, the extent of the benefits packages that full-time tech workers receive paid leave policies, you know very generous paternal or, um, paternity leave policies. Um, these are, are things that, that, that uh, contracted workers do not have access to as well. So it's really hard to sort of um, support a family um, to build wealth and to build a stable career with upward mobility if you're stuck in one of these jobs um, that is hired through a staffing agency.
3: And we do want your experience. We want to hear, are you a contract worker for a tech company? What's your experience been like? Would you like to be a direct employee, but you haven't been able to accomplish that? So maybe tell us how you're navigating your work options. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum. And, of course, our email address is forum at KQED.org. So, one big question is why do tech companies do this, Catherine? I mean, it feels like they have so much money that it's not really worth uh, not hiring employees directly.
4: That's a really good question. And we'd love for for some tech companies to really tell us. But, I mean, my suspicion is that this is about returning value to shareholders and um, the value of the company, the value of the stock is higher when um, Headcount is lower, so um, so there's a real incentive to keep the numbers on the books for full-time employees as low as possible, uh, and that means. But at the same time, you know, these are multinational companies, some of the biggest companies in the world. They they do have to have staff capacity to actually operate, um, and so they're finding other ways to fill uh, that staffing capacity without having to add employees to their books. Um, And that helps them look like they're operating much more efficiently. I mean, I think that there is a a sort of, you know, part of the mythology of Silicon Valley is these really high flying companies that get really big, really fast and have very low headcounts. So, you know, when Instagram was purchased by Facebook for over a billion dollars, which is actually kind of a quaint number these days, um, they only had 13 full-time employees and that was sort of celebrated same with WhatsApp. So, I mean, I think that that is part of, um, it's one of the reasons why we're focused on tech here, you know, obviously contracting out is not uh, a practice that only happens in the tech industry, but because of some of these unique characteristics of the tech business model and, and venture capital and how it has fueled some of these practices, it's important for us to look at tech in particular and how this plays out in the tech industry.
3: Yeah. What are the sort of staffing categories where this is kind of the biggest issue? You know, I mean, I think content moderation has come up. I've seen in from my own reporting, I ran into a lot of the babysitters for self-driving cars were also uh-huh. sort of contractors, even though that seemed like something that's really directly in the line of the technological development programs at these companies. So where do we see this uh, really playing out?
4: Well, this is one of the reasons why it's been very hard to shine a light on this practice, because it really runs the gamut. Um, They do everything from uh, content moderation to software engineering to marketing to recruiting. We even heard one story of, um, you know, the trainer in the on-campus gym being hired through a staffing agency. So that makes it very difficult um, when these workers are so diffuse across the organization um, for them to advocate for themselves as a group. Um, You mentioned some of the good work that's been done organizing some of the service workers on tech campuses, like cafeteria workers or shuttle drivers. Um, That is much easier to do. Uh, In some ways, it's actually they're in a better position because the role is so well-defined and their employer is in in the business of doing one thing um, that you can wrap your hands around advocating for that group of worker. Um, Because the roles here are so diffuse and because these workers go into a tech office or maybe pre-pandemic, they went into a tech office and sat side by side with a full-time directly employed employee doing the same job. It became very hard to sort of figure out how to advocate for them as one group.
3: Yeah. We're talking about the tech industry shadow workforce of contractors, which is the subject of a newly released report by the Tech Equity Collaborative Talking right now with Catherine Bracey, executive director and founder of the Tech Equity Collaborative. And we'd like to add Ferris Lee works as a sort of security officer in sort of the the big office at a large tech company who shared his story for this report. Welcome, Ferris. Well, I'm I'm glad to be here. (laughs) So can you just tell us a little bit about the kind of job you have and how you became a, a contractor or found this role?
1: Absolutely. Um, I am a security officer. I work in the regional security operations center for one of the largest tech companies in the entire world. Um, their products are used by pretty much every single person, every single day, uh, as long as you have Internet. Um, and my job is to make sure that the data centers are basically kept secure. I monitor the cameras and the alarms for over 70 sites across North and South America.
3: So do you work directly with employees of that company and, and you're just one of the staffing agency people or is the whole security center kind of all uh, folks in your position?
1: All of the security, uh, Officers are part of the contracting company that I work for, um, but we work on the data center alongside a lot of the full-time employees. Got
3: it. And what's your experience, Ben, about how your compensation and benefits and you know work life compare with those of the directly employed uh, workers?
1: Our pay is definitely a lot less, despite the fact that the uh, client that we work for tries to uh, say that we get paid very, very well. Um, Our benefits are a lot less. We don't have access to paid time off. Um, When the pandemic hit, a lot of the full-time employees were able to go to work from home jobs, whereas because our security job requires us to be on-site every single day, we had to continue working through the pandemic. And in some cases, like in my case, I went from working eight-hour days to 12-hour days. And additionally, a lot of the employee resources that would typically be offered to full-time employees uh, aren't things that we have access to, including things like printer rights. We don't have access to use the company printers to print out even things like an out-of-order sign for the bathroom.
3: Hmm. You know, these companies celebrate their cultures as being inclusive and fun and interesting. What's your experience been with feeling included in that company as a contractor at that workplace that you've been for quite a long time?
1: I, I've i been here for three and a half years, and I definitely felt absolutely excluded. Um, while I was allowed to enjoy some of the, like the cafes and the snack rooms and things like that, I wasn't allowed to engage in any sort of uh after work activities, whether that was, you know, Friday night drinking with other co-workers after work, obviously, um, or even things like for me as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I wasn't even allowed to go with the with other employees to the pride parade in our area. Um, and one of the things that made me feel particularly excluded was the fact that as a trans man, um, I wasn't allowed to even have my preferred name on my badge until very, very recently. And that took me going to uh, our local union and getting help from them and going public before my name was able to be put onto my badge, despite the fact that the company I work for claims to be inclusive.
3: And and why was that? Because there's sort of a dual management structure where you're you know, the staffing agency is controlling your badge and the company is was not really responsive to those concerns.
1: Basically, I was told that my badge had to reflect my legal name. I was told this by my contracting company's management team. Um, And every time I tried to go for help and get any sort of assistance with any sort of transphobia that I was experiencing on site, um, I was told I had to go through my chain of command, had to go through my management team, the contracting company's HR, and nobody was doing anything. And I wasn't allowed to even speak to our clients' HR or any of their management And it wasn't until I went public that um, suddenly everybody became interested in helping me. And, oh, well, we have all these policies that you could have had access to. And when I go and click on the links and the emails they're sending me in my work email, I don't have access to it because I'm a TVC, a temp vendor contractor. I'm not a full-time employee. It was another one of those things where I didn't have access to certain information or certain employee resource groups because of my status as a TVC.
3: So you mentioned you're now involved with a union. Uh, which one is it, and how has that, you know, changed your situation? If you can say which uh, union it is.
1: Yes, um, I w- work in conjunction with Alphabet Workers Union, um, which is a minority union. Um, but we are doing some great work in trying to get rid of this two-tier workforce. Um, make things equitable across the board for both TVCs and FTEs. And how do you, what do you want to see changed going forward? I want the clients to be held accountable. I want the contracting companies that do work with them to be held to the policies that the clients say that they're keeping them to. And I want to make sure that everyone has access to proper pay and benefits and isn't being excluded just because they work for a contracting company instead of a client.
3: Thanks so much. That was Ferris Lee, a security officer at a very large tech company who shared his story for the new report from the tech equity collaborative on this shadow workforce. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us, Ferris. No problem. Catherine Bracey, uh, your head of the tech equity collaborative Are the the kinds of stories that Ferris shared, are are these the sort of issues that you're hoping to address uh, with this report and, and kind of shedding light on these workers?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think Ferris's story is very indicative of what we heard across the board. One of the, you know, oftentimes people look at a job quality and base it on, um, you know, whatever the pay rate is. And on paper, that may look good for some of these workers who are making, you know, $20 or $30 an hour. That doesn't seem like a really bad job. But when you hear the experiences um, that that people like Ferris are having, I mean, it it becomes really harmful. And I think that this fragmented management structure is a big driver of a lot of the harms that workers are experiencing where they're caught in this sort of Kafka-esque cycle where they're legally employed by the staffing agency many of the workers don't have any contact with the staffing agency at all some of whom we talked to didn't remember the name of their actual legal employer they had to go check their pay stub Mm. Um, but their day-to-day work is managed by these tech companies who really keep try to keep as much of a hands-off approach because they're scared of of being exposed to legal liability um, and being viewed as sort of a joint employer of these workers. And so it creates this real, um, you know, these huge cracks that the workers fall through. Meanwhile, both the tech companies and the staffing agencies are profiting off of of their work. So that's definitely something we want to uh, shine a light on and make sure that, you know, we're not trying to outlaw this practice. It makes a lot of sense for a lot of the work that these companies have to do. But I think that it's only fair that um, these workers have access to a similar set of benefits and protections that the full-time employees have.
3: I mean, shouldn't the staffing agencies that do this work also take some of the heat for the problems in this system?
4: Absolutely. And I think the tech companies have a lot of leverage that they don't use over the staffing agencies. I mean, the staffing agencies benefit immensely from these information asymmetries that are driven by the tech companies not wanting to know. It's sort of a don't ask, don't tell. So the tech companies pay the staffing agencies a certain amount of money and then leave it to the staffing agencies to decide how much they actually get paid and and, and the tech companies are not auditing they might say hey we demand that you pay you know a 15 dollars minimum wage or whatever but they're not doing any auditing on that um they're not and oftentimes they're you know the rfps that they write for these staffing agencies are really race to the bottom they are only looking to see like what is the cost and Um, can you actually deliver the service? They're not asking for any information about how the workers are actually treated. uh, And that allows the staffing agencies to really maximize their profits without having anyone push them to provide better um, benefits to the workers. So we would like to see uh, tech companies really step up and adopt stronger protections and auditing practices that will allow better actors in the staffing agency industry to compete with some of these larger companies that are really just in it for the profits.
3: Well, you know, they actually have a great example of this because so many of these companies take Apple, for example, had these supply chains that are spread Mm -hmm. out all over the world where they had all these workers who are really making Apple products but who don't work for Apple. And they started to try to, you know, especially in response to some worker suicides at Foxconn manufacturing facilities, they started to kind of fish around in those supply chains, right, and say, wait, is this a good company that we're working with or a bad company and come up with these kind of auditing strategies. You'd like to see them do the same thing for these contractors here at home.
4: Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the problems that they have is that the, the line is so much blurrier for these workers mm-hmm. than it is for somebody who's making iPhones in a factory in China. Right. Like these are workers who are sitting side by side doing the same job. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes. So mm-hmm. they I think that they are just a little bit more concerned about, um, you know, these practices coming to light. Yeah potentially being exposed to legal liability. Why are you not hiring these folks full time when they're doing jobs that are very core to the business? Um, and so I think that they're less, I mean, I'm, 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 yeah. I don't know for sure, but my impression is that they're less willing to really dig in um, and uncover some things that might not look great for them.
3: We're talking about the tech industry's shadow workforce with Catherine Bracey, executive director and founder of the Tech Equity Collaborative. And we're gonna hear more of your stories after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the tech industry shadow workforce of contractors, which is the subject of a newly released report by the Tech Equity Collaborative. We're joined by Catherine Bracey, the executive director and founder of that organization. And we want to add you into the conversation. Daniel from San Francisco, welcome to the show.
5: Hi, thanks so much. Um, So I just had a quick comment about the negative psychological effects that uh, we experience as this kind of shadow workforce. Um, So generally speaking, you don't really know what your colleagues make um, in terms of salary, but when you get hired as, well, at the company that I was at, being a contract worker, you actually had a completely different color badge ID. And so the second you walk into a room, you automatically feel less than, you know you're making less than the person. Uh, who's a direct hire, and in fact, I don't even want to get into the psychology of this, but they were called white badges, the direct hires, and then we were called red badges.
3: Oof. <laughs> yeah. So
5: that alone kind of makes you feel, you know, just less than.
3: Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Daniel, do, were you able to find work in tech as a directly employed employer, or are you still kind of in the contracting game? No,
5: I'm, I'm still in the contracting uh, level, yep.
3: And are you hoping to find direct employment
5: yeah i would i would love to i mean some of the work i've been doing i sit side by side with so-called direct hires uh every time there's a manager that comes in and speaks to you it's a direct hire but we you know when when it comes to the work we're on the same level it's just the the psychology of not being uh not having the same badge color it really messes with you when you come into work every day like the last caller was saying you're not invited to the bring your family to work days some of the cool functions that they have, you're not allowed to come in. But, you know, you come in the next day and then you're doing the same work. So, mm. yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. thanks to the investigator for shining a light on this. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much, Daniel. I really, really appreciate you sharing that story. I want to bring in uh, John from Nevada?
6: Hello, this is John. Hey, John. I'm a, hey, I'm a contractor and I work a lot with, uh, I'm hearing Carol use the term tech companies a lot. But I primarily work with work for MSPs, managed service providers, and I feel like they're just they they've come up with these contracting portals that are just super abusive, unhealthy, and they really result in a very mismanaged IT practice. Because um, these MSPs are are all these all these big companies now, their primary objective is to reduce costs. And they're finding MSPs and they do the I guess they do these RFPs. Um and I think those RFPs should be regulated because um they're they're what they're doing is these MSPs a lot of times aren't even in the
3: And hey, John, hey, just for MSP, yeah. just for people who don't know, right? This is basically like you run the company's IT <laughs> services, but you do it as like an outside entity.
6: Yeah, they contract me. I'll go to data centers, I'll go to like um, fast food establishments, retail establishments, and do, um, their internet. I'll, they'll do their POS systems. I'll do cabling, security cameras, site surveys, troubleshooting of all that stuff. And what I'm finding is these MSPs will, they're not even in this, they're not even entities in this country. And they, they outsource their network operation center. Uh, to, to other countries and I have to work with these network operations center people on the phone and a lot of times I know more than that they know so little that it's not even it's just a joke hmm. and I'm not surprised that you hear about half the internet getting taken down sometimes because of a contractor that did something you know in a wrong I get to these they don't even tell me really what I'm doing until I get to these jobs and And then the person on the other end of the phone, the network operations center that i'm working with they don't they don't really know they're just going down a flowchart they don't really know they don't have the technical ex- expertise to deal with it yeah. and how I get these jobs is just is 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 really an unhealthy environment um, in the portal because they've set it up where we can bid against each other mm. and that that results in some really low wage low quality um, it people working in there and i'm actually really surprised that um and and, and i talked to other people in the in the community that do the same contracting portals and uh, we're we're all just amazed that um, these places don't end up getting ripped off because yeah. they just take random people and throw them in there and they let you into their back their wiring closet their back room they could be putting in um you know nefarious equipment in there or they could just come back later and rob the joint you know so um i really think that they need to be regulated um these are when when they yeah. get the contract when they're awarded well, john, the contract.
3: Let, me, let me uh tr- come to Catherine for a, a couple of your ideas there want to want to throw those uh by her you know uh john was talking about Catherine that these companies put out requests for proposals to do this kind of work, which is one way people get contract work. Um, Have you seen those as an avenue for exploiting workers who are sort of in a, it's another sort of way to race to the bottom on some of these issues?
4: Yeah, I mean, the RFP is really setting the framework and and it sends a lot of signals to the staffing agency about what the tech company will accept. and they don't. And honestly, we have found that many of them just it's more it's less nefarious than it is sort of it's just not on their mind. They're not thinking about these things. Um, so we're hoping that the, the standard that we've created and want to help te- tech companies adopt will fix this. But um, they could be putting a lot better um, uh, frameworks and details and standards into these RFPs that then signal to the staffing agency ecosystem, hey, you got to step up. Um, what you're providing in order to uh, meet our requirements, and we're willing to pay more for that. I mean, I think that, as you mentioned, these companies have uh, uh, unlimited, basically, access to resources. There's no reason that they can't raise the standard, both for workers and for the quality of the services that are being provided, as, as the last caller just was discussing.
3: Yeah, we're talking about the tech industry's contractor workforce, the folks you know working right next to directly employed, uh, badged employees, as we might call them. And you know Ron actually has a question for other listeners. How do direct hire employees feel about contractors doing the same work for far less? Do you perceive this practice as detrimental to your own compensation, job security, et cetera? If you're a direct hire employee and you're working next to contractors, give, give us a call. Our number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Catherine Bracey with the Tech Equity Collaborative. Kavita has a question. I wanted to ask the about the cut that the staffing agencies take which she says in her experience have been 25 to 50 percent, which seems insane bordering on indentured servitude, she says.
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons that uh, in the policy recommendations that we are proposing, um, we think transparency is really important because there's really no um, there's no transparency around what cut the um, staffing agencies take before they pay the workers. And like I said before, the tech companies are sort of in this I don't want to know mindset. And so they're not asking questions or digging very deep to see if the workers are actually being compensated based on what they think they're being compensated. I've, I've heard stories of direct, direct employed managers thinking that these workers were getting paid twice as much as they actually were getting paid based on the contract that they had signed with the staffing agency. So we really need, and that's where public policy can really play a role. I think there's a lot that tech companies can do voluntarily, but ultimately we need need staffing agencies and tech companies to be forced to um, provide some data about who they're hiring, uh, who works for them, just in the way that they have to report data on their full-time workforce. and then look at those disparities across the board. I mean, there are equal pay laws on the books, but the loophole here is that equal pay laws only apply to workers who are employed by the same legal entity. And since the contract workers are employed by the staffing agency and the, and the tech workers are employed by the tech company, equal pay, pay law doesn't apply here. So there's a lot that public policy can do here as well.
3: Yeah. Bruce and Gloria right? and I'm sure uh, a lot of academics out there can, I, can uh, identify with it. They say, sadly... Adjunct professors at SF State faced the same contract employee issues, and not just at SF State, at just about every university around. Yeah. Uh, Ron earlier had asked how directly employed uh, workers felt about contractors, and Kyler actually uh, wrote in with an answer. I've only worked in small to medium-sized tech startups as a full-time employee, and in some of them, the division between employees and contractors is weird for everyone. It feels like a caste system. Which is subtly promoted by managers' behavior. In some companies I've been at, a lot of contractors get hired as employees, but others have clearly set an expectation that that will never happen for any contractor. It's a lot of uh, language that I feel like is, it really echoes your report, Catherine.
4: Yeah, and I want to, this is a point we haven't touched on yet, is this opportunity for upward mobility. A lot of workers come into these roles because they have this, you know, implicit sense that this might be a path to one of these high-flying, stable, really well-compensated jobs in the tech industry. And, you know, implicitly or explicitly, they're kind of strung along, right? And Um, They're never really offered a formal pathway to getting hired into a full-time role. As we found in our report, white contractors are much more likely to get converted than than contractors of color, which is a huge problem. Um, And we think that as we recover from the pandemic and, and and the labor market is shifting, a lot of people are going to be looking at these temporary staffing agency opportunities As a way to get back into the workforce and that that changes the power dynamic even more putting it the staffing agencies and the tech companies even more in the driver's seat so we really need to find one of the solutions we suggest is that tech companies really look at these contract workforces as a pool of talent. Um, They're always saying they want to hire more diverse, uh, more diverse workforce well they've got this well trained experienced workforce that is more diverse than their full time staff. Um, they could easily tap into if they wanted to create the programs to to create those on ramps, and we hope that they will.
3: Yeah. Uh, one more question before we go to Brad. Or one more uh, comment before we go to Brad in Foster City. St writes, I'm not an IT person, but a finance person. I was hired as a contract worker at Tesla in 2014. I was initially offered a full time job. I went through a hiring agency, but as soon as they knew I was a contractor in my previous job, I was given a take it or leave it option for a contract job. Just one. Another mechanism of exploitation. Brad in Foster City, you're on.
2: Hi, you guys. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. I just want to support um, uh, you. I'm a contractor for a biotech company everybody's heard of. I've been here for almost three years. California law also limits. You could only be hired for three years as a contractor. Then it's either up or out. I started and I'm a single parent and I have a college degree and I just assumed, like you said, that it would lead to a full-time position if I showed extreme punctuality, dependability, and just I strove to always ask for more training and make myself available. Everything that I could possibly think of to do. And um, I started at $26 gross. I mean, and uh, over, after a year, I got a $2 raise, and recently I was raised to 30 That's That means your net uh, week is like 800 bucks, <sighs> and I'm working full-time. It doesn't even cover my rent, and so I just assumed I could suck it up for a year or two, and it would lead to a full time position. Meanwhile, they really put a kibosh on like don't ever discuss how much you're getting paid. But you know, like people in, around you are buying homes and stuff mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, and here you are not even covering your rent, and and even uh, the one other thing like daycare, like that's one of the other perks. Like I have a I have a five year old daughter, like. There was a daycare that was only available to full-time employees, and like here they are driving like Teslas, and you're barely scraping by, and where's that kind of assistance going to? The people who are getting paid the most money. People who really need it, struggling single parent, I wasn't eligible. I had to go to some place. I was, there was nothing. There was nothing, not even a credit or any kind of help anyway i mean they just and they never hired in the three years i've been here they have not hired one person yet they have the nerve to constantly say let us know if you have any friends who want to be contractors it's just and the reason you guys it's not to um, to wrap up i'm sorry i'm saying so much but it's capitalism the whole profit it's just profit it's not like the ethos of the company the mission statement i mean they're publicly traded companies that care about the dollar and that's really why i hope ultimately we evolved to, like, evaluating more than profit. That's why I, I think a lot of people are finding fault with this system because yeah. it's let's just beyond – it's not sustainable. It values profit over everything else, and, and the breakdown is starting to be appreciated that <clears throat> pure profit pursuit is not equal, equating to human well-being, whether it be for individual workers hey, or the hey, Br-
3: Yeah, Brad. No, I and I, I appreciate the broader perspective you're bringing to this and also – Wish you the the best of luck. It's tough. Being a single parent is is tough. Wanna to just make sure we get to the last uh, couple callers. Uh we'll move kinda of quickly here. Jorge in, in San Jose. Thanks for uh waiting.
2: Hey Jorge. Through a couple of times. Yeah, You're yeah. on. Yeah, it. Okay.
3: Somewhere.
7: Okay. Give oh. me a uh, give I me think a
3: around, uh, Jorge got caught up with other things. Let's go to uh Reza in Sunnyvale.
7: Hi. Uh so I have a direct employee uh um, And I've also been working with um, uh, contract workers along my side. Mm -hmm. Um, And after a couple of promotions, I got into a position of being able to convert contract workers into full-time employees. Uh, And my comment was mainly from the perspective of actually doing this conversion was incredibly difficult. Uh, primarily from a financial standpoint. So this is a, this is a uh, contract worker who is effectively doing the work of a full-time employee, has the same skills, does the same hours, um, and, and I'm trying to convert this person uh, into a full-time employee. And just the, the budgets that um, the cost centers come from uh, made it very difficult to be able to do this conversion um, and that's been that's kind of the 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 part that I wanted to just mention. from yeah, no, no, Perspective no. is even when when I think direct employees and and managers are trying to do conversions, just the cost structure of these companies or of our companies, um, don't necessarily make it easy. And and I think this is uh, uh, similar to one of the other comments that someone mentioned on the.
3: On no, the- I appreciate that perspective, Rez, and I wanted to get your sense of this, Catherine Bracy, as we come to the end of this segment here. I mean, what can the tech companies do to to kind of pull back some of these barriers that reza and other people have alluded to if this is going to be something that continues if you're not trying to outlaw this practice as you said you understand why people do it then it seems like making that conversion pathway easier would be a route towards greater equity
4: yeah you would think i think um the the point i made earlier about you know the the incentives to keep headcount low are really built into the structure as the last caller just illustrated. Um, we have heard from tech companies that it's just a lot easier to get approval for budgets to do, to hire contractors or to get a staffing agency contract than it is to create a full time role. And that resistance, I, I'm certain, is due to we don't want to drive up our headcount and look like a bloated company to Wall Street. Um, so, so that's, I mean, that's some resistance. I don't know that it's a super easy way to, there's a super easy answer to that question in the short term, but if tech companies really care about taking care of all of their workers, and honestly, there's a lot of liability issues around this practice as it stands, um, then we're here to help them. And for all the workers who called in, um, and all the workers who are listening, We'd love for you to come organize with us. We're, we're trying to get some laws passed this year in California that will start to address this issue. And we're, start, and we're hearing from tech companies that they want to be part of the solution, um, but we need workers to really stand up and use their voice. So techequitycollaborative.org is where you can find more information about us.
3: And you're looking for uh, people on both directly employed folks okay. as well as contractors.
4: Absolutely. We want everybody into your last question about how directly employed workers feel about this. I mean, you had one or two mentioned there, but we hear all the time from people in our community, directly employed tech workers, that this is, uh, this is a maddening practice um, and they want to do something about it. They don't feel good about this, um, but they don't know how to fix it. So we're asking them to come fix it with us. Yeah.
3: Thank you so much. Last uh, comment from Constance. She writes, the non-permanent tech force, it's not forgotten, but ignored. This issue has been well known for a long time. Do you think it's going to change now? It's criminal to use people this way. We've been talking with Catherine Bracey, the executive director and founder of the Tech Equity Collaborative, about her organization's new report on the shadow workforce of contractors. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.